You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is Andy Liu, the author of Tea War, A History of Capitalism in China and India, who teaches at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. He has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on Chinese migrant workers in the gold mines of the British and American empires of the mid-19th century and the racial prejudice they faced. It's a review of the Chinese question, the gold rushes and global politics by Mei Nai. Hello, Andy, and thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for the invitation. I look forward to it. So maybe we, as a starting point, we could take the alleged moment when gold was discovered in California, the beginning of the of the California gold rush. Yeah. So the the two major gold rushes um, that take place are in the 1850s um, in California. The story goes in 1848. On a site called Sutter's Mill, gold was just kind of discovered in the riverbed, and this led to this great rush to kind of define more gold that could actually be accessed without mining. And eventually, they do they do turn to mining, and that's in 1848. And you know, very famously, 49ers are the people who kind of rush over by the next year. And news of gold reaches Hong Kong, I think, within a year or two after that. And so, Chinese would be miners are alerted very early. The parallel story to that is in Australia. There's a man named Edward Hargraves. That you know, May kind of tells this anecdote that she was visiting Australia at an academic conference and realized it looked a lot like California. And this was probably the same realization Edward Hargraves had, where he had tried to mine for gold in California. Uh, and he must have realized, you know, if, if there's gold in California, there's probably some gold in here as well. And so Edward Hargraves in the early 1850s is credited with kind of turning Australia into a site of a gold rush. Anecdotally, it's kind of worth noting in the Chinese language. Today, if you go to the airport and you go to like San Francisco, the airport will say like San Francisco, like sounds like San Francisco, but the old name. And I remember my grandma, who's Cantonese, would say this. She would call San Francisco Zhou uh, Jin San or Gao Gan San, which is Old Gold Mountain, because New Gold Mountain was Melbourne, right? And these are names that are sort of like this relic of the 19th century, or people people of a certain age from certain parts of China would still call these cities those names based on their reputation in China as the two destinations for gold in the 19th century. And so California and Australia are really parallel stories from the 50s to the 80s and 90s. And that is kind of the first half, you know, two thirds of the book. And South Africa is the third kind of, I don't know, like first as tragedy, second as farce, kind of, but, you know, kind of tragic sequel to the story where um, they had known about gold in, in the Transvaal in South Africa for a while, but it was kind of expensive to dig for gold. But eventually, by the turn of the 20th century, they decided to invest in kind of like very intensive mining techniques. But to do so, they needed cheap labor. The The capitalists they discovered or they decided is, you know, African labor was too expensive. So they landed upon this option, which wasn't their first option, of importing Chinese workers. And the irony here, again, is that, you know, May goes through great lengths to show that Chinese migration to California and Australia was not unfree, that it was free migration. But the reputation globally was that they were, you know, indentured slaves working for masters. And so because of that reputation, these South African capitalists decide, well, Chinese people are just inherently cheap and unfree, so we should just turn to them. Um, and I guess the other irony here is that by this time, the 1900s or so, after we have Chinese exclusion in the U.S. and Australia for several decades now, people in southern China, Canton, Guangdong, they did not want to go anymore to overseas. They were, you know, in Southeast Asia. They found better opportunities at this point. And so they wind up in South Africa looking for Chinese migrants in northern China, which is kind of this anomaly in the history of overseas Chinese populations. Most of them come from the, from the south or central or coastal regions, not the north. 
Um, so it's this kind of interesting kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because if the earlier waves of migration were, you know, definitely not unfree, this was definitely unfree. This was indenture, uh, contract labor, where workers had to sign a contract. If they quit their job or, you know, didn't listen to their bosses, they could be physically tortured or pr- imprisoned with impunity. They were constantly going on strike. Thousands died in South Africa. So this was definitely the worst version of a sort of unfree labor force. And if the earlier accusation was that Chinese workers were enslaved by Chinese masters, you know, the accusation by white politicians, here we have in South Africa, white capitalists who are themselves directly in charge of the sort of indenturing um, and abuse and torture of, of their Chinese workers in South Africa. So it's this kind of, yeah, it's, it's a byproduct of the earlier gold rushes, but it kind of takes on a qualitatively different um, character than the earlier ones. But how would that, how are those people from from northern China sort of recruited and and how did they get to South Africa? Yeah, the details. Well, so the recruitment and the the agency, I think, is we have to assume is just you know brokers from South Africa work with Chinese brokers to go into northern China. By this time, this is the turn of the 1900s. China is relatively quote unquote open at this point, especially at the port. The port of Tianjin, I think, is where they find the workers, and it's a treaty port at this point. There's free trade happening, so there's they could just show up in Tianjin and you know talk to some local agents who could round up some workers on their behalf. The kind of backstory to this is this famous event in Chinese history is the Boxer Uprising happens in the 1890s. And the context of that, you know, this kind of major peasant uprising against foreign powers. And the context of that is northern China has always kind of been this ecologically uh, not as rich part of the region. And they were also devastated by the global market for several decades. So it was a poor region socially, economically, naturally. And so you could say they were kind of primed, right, prepared to go overseas because of the sort of really destitute conditions of the region. But, you know, historically, they were not an overseas, you know, these provinces, Shandong and Hebei, they were not a group that would typically go overseas looking for adventure, quote unquote. They were, in this case, kind of literally hired as employees, unfree employees um, of, of international agents and, and, and mining capital. So to take a step back for a moment, how did the discovery of these large deposits of gold in the mid-19th century change the global economy? Yeah, it's a, you know, not a small question. Um, so to back up a little bit, the global currency was mostly silver with some gold for the previous centuries before 1850. This is when the gold rushes begin. And like something to kind of keep in mind is that the global currency was silver largely because China, the Ming and the Qing empires their currency was silver. And because their economic activity was so big, they were kind of the engine driving the global economy. Demand for silver was high. Price of silver was high in China. So the Europeans were kind of doing whatever they could to bring silver from modern-day Peru and Japan to China and so on. With the, with the adoption or the discovery and the adoption of gold as a standard of first the British, then the kind of industrialized richer countries of Europe and the US by the 19th century, it does a lot of things. At first, it you know, it greatly enriches the UK, enriches the United States, uh, makes the kind of British Empire the sort of not a monopoly, but a sort of uh, having a domin- dominance over the global currency of the time. And it also conversely devalues silver, makes silver far less in demand, and that makes uh, that damages the Chinese economy. At this point, the Qing is uh, has a lot of indemnities to pay from losing wars and having these uprisings, and so it's almost like. 
in my mind, it's kind of like the third world debt crisis of the 1980s, where they have to pay back all these loans, and their currency is actually falling in value relative to the to the to the people they have to pay it back to. So, um, it has this double sided effect of making or consolidating the British Empire. It doesn't make the British Empire, but it consolidates the British and U.S. rule in the global economy, um, while at the same time, kind of damaging the Chinese economy. Um, one statistic that May throws out there is that. Um, the amount of gold found in California, Australia, later South Africa, equaled the amount of gold total in circulation in the previous three millennia, right? And within like the 1850s, within a decade, the global circulation of gold had jumped by 30%. So this is a huge discovery. It's, it's like a huge enlargening of the sources of capital for the British and the United States almost from nothing, almost from scratch. Um, so as May puts it, she, it was basically a new round of capital accumulation that kind of led to this new phase of the British Empire as this financier and creditor to the to the rest of the world. And this is a slightly tangential question, but is there, is there a sense in which there's something quite artificial about that? Because presumably gold, before these discoveries, I mean, a bit like the discovery of diamonds in, in South Africa, a little bit later, that gold was more valuable than silver, because it was so much rarer. And you discover these huge deposits. And one thing that could have done is is make gold less valuable, right? It's less. It turns out to be much less scarce than it had been thought to be, but it seems to have an opposite effect that it somehow maintained its its exchange value while right. increasing in quantity. Yeah, I think the analogy obviously is kind of with the U.S. dollar today. You know that there's so many U.S. dollars around, but um, you know I think the Times ran an article, New York Times, sorry, that ran an article saying like the US dollar is the strongest it's been in two decades, precisely because every transaction has to happen through dollars. So with the adoption of gold as the standard of the British and then the the Western European and the United States economies, that keeps the demand for gold high because, you know, all these other countries that want to do trade, um, especially with the richer countries, you know, the majority of global economic activity is taking place through gold standard countries. So if gold were, you know, just around and rare, but not the gold standard, you know, it would be valuable, but this was a political, not just a purely economic um, transformation that took place, right? Be- being adopted by the most powerful economies around the world and the, you know, the loans that were being sent, not just to, the, not just in the domestic context, but, you know, Indian railroads and, you know, purchasing whatever, like uh, development of Argentina, right? This is all happening through London. Um, so if those loans are happening through gold, you have to pay it back, pay it back through gold. So the demand skyrockets um, and the price skyrockets. So was the effect that the discovery of gold had on the Chinese economy, was that one of the reasons so many workers left China to go and work in the gold mines? Because the Chinese economy had collapsed. They didn't have work at home. They had to go and find it in the gold mines. I think the timing is a little off to draw direct causality. I think gold doesn't become truly adopted and truly change the economy until 1870s or so. But the bigger dynamics are the correct ones in the sense that the Chinese economy was kind of facing this relative crisis as the European and US economy were kind of on the ascent um, in the middle of the 19th century. The big dynamic that took place was the first opium war, right, which ends in the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842, creates Hong Kong as this kind of free trade, free migration port. And the migrants that go to California and Australia, they're primarily Cantonese migrants. Um, and they come from it's a you know it's a pretty interesting, well known but very interesting and in a way kind of mysterious story. There's one particular region in, in, in Canton and Guangdong province called um, Si in Mandarin is Se Yap in, in Cantonese. It's like not a very spectacular place at all. There's nothing particularly special about it. But this is a familiar story 
in a lot of Chinese history where you have a sort of county or village, there's not enough fields, there's too many mountains, people can't survive as farmers, so they just kind of go out and find a market niche. Could be in China, could be in Southeast Asia. In this particular case, this particular group of counties, they found their niche in gold mining in California, in Australia, and it leads to a pattern of sort of kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, a chain migration, where people from this county wind up kind of becoming the basis of the Chinese diaspora in these parts of the world, at least for a few decades. If for no other reason that somebody, an ancestor, a friend, or a family member went there first and brought brought along someone else they knew. Uh, but in general, I, I would say that there's a lot of this stuff going on. Gold is it's definitely like a real phenomenon, but it's not just gold mining. It's business people looking for opportunities to trade with California, um, go to Southeast Asia, go to Australia. So I think gold mining is a distinct stream within a broader trend of outward migration that is enabled, you know, partly by, you could call it the stagnation of the Chinese economy, but also the sort of liberalization of trade and migration, um, with Hong Kong being a sort of major milestone, 1842. And presumably, as, as well as you say in the piece, and as presumably May Nye makes clear in her book, that the, you have a new gold is discovered, people go out there to mine it, and a whole load of other ancillary industries and businesses grow up around the mines. And so how many of the people who who went from China to work there, some of them were digging the gold or panning for gold or however they were extracting it. But others were working in other industries around in the towns that grew up around the mines. Yeah. So it's interesting to note that gold itself, again, is only really a part of the story. It doesn't last forever. Um, the interesting story that she tells is it's in the 18... In Cal, so California is sort of like the what's the word, like ground zero for this, what she calls the coolie myth, the the stereotype that Chinese people are like racially, not just politically, socially, they're racially unfree. They're unable to be changed. They're always unfree workers. That begins in the 1850s with the first governor of California, John Bigler. It doesn't really take off. I mean, it takes off enough to, for him to win an election. and uh, But for the most part, people generally think of Chinese workers, Chinese immigrants as, you know, slightly different, but not that different from the white workers from the rest of the U.S. and Australia. What really, the next kind of turning point is the gold economy kind of trails off. Um, the next kind of big step in this history is the railroads, the transcontinental railroads, which Chinese workers are a big part of. That provides some jobs, but the creation of the railroads actually kind of um, hurts the California economy because it gets connected to the rest of the East Coast, which is industrial. So wages fall, prices fall. And it's only in this kind of context of a economic depression of the 60s and 70s that this coolie myth takes off as and, and the sort of anti-Chinese sentiment takes off. At this point, a lot of Chinese miners have left gold, right? They've, If they've been really successful, they go into just kind of trade, import, export, kind of going back and forth between Hong Kong and San Francisco, for instance, and Australia. They go into just kind of normal run-of-the-mill businesses like, you know, laundry and restaurants and um, just kind of being petty petty traders. So their presence is felt. Um, I think the first kind of documented Chinatown of the United States is San Francisco, and it's a real major hub of um, a lot of Chinese neighborhoods, uh, Chinese business activity. And yeah, so gold is kind of the launching point, but certainly this is just a broader history of, of migration and diaspora. In general, from San Francisco, I believe, the second and third Chinatowns are New York City and Philadelphia. So there's no gold There's no gold over here. I live in Philadelphia. Um, so they're coming here for business opportunities, right? But there, for, are, but there are railroads. There, exactly, right. They're, they're, this is just you know, import-export merchant activity and, and sort of middle-class middle class jobs. But I mean, just in terms of absolute numbers, going back maybe to the 
to the gold rush. Were there many more workers from China than elsewhere? Yeah. So these aren't absolute numbers. I don't actually know the pure statistics, but I think the high point is that at one point, the Chinese population constitutes one-tenth of the California population and 25% of the mining population. And then the same as in Australia with 25% of the mining population. One thing I think May points out and kind of wants to make us remember is that, you know, this is not just a biracial configuration that actually at first, the first gold miners were probably indigenous people, indigenous to, to, to California, Mexico, even Hawaiians. They get ran off by white um, migrants very early on. And then Chinese workers are there. There's some black workers who are also, and this is kind of the first moment of racial exclusion. Before the sort of Chinese exclusion politics settle in, um, they're really gesturing towards a previous racial policy, which was to uh, white workers were very much threatened by what they perceived as like cheaper black workers, um, enslaved or emancipated black workers. So they even passed a bill to codify all black workers as fugitive slaves, quote unquote, so that they have to be deported from California. And that is basically the prototype, um, according to May, for the initial kind of anti-Chinese coolie myth that Chinese workers are like slave, like like enslaved Africans, that they are inherently unfree, racially different, and therefore are a threat to white workers. So I think she takes a great pains to say like, this isn't this is a kind of complex racial configuration and Chinese workers are in the United States, Chinese workers find themselves in a particular, you know, node within a constellation in Australia. It's a different constellation in South Africa. It's a different constellation where the, they have white capital, local black labor, and then imported quote unquote imported Chinese labor. So, but in terms of absolute numbers, the Chinese workers are never the majority or even, you know, the plurality, but they are just kind of a sizable, I'd say like quarter to a 10th of the population. You said that it took a, it took a couple of decades for the for the coolie myth, as you call it, as Maynard calls it, to develop. So, was there did something change that in those decades to, to make this racism develop among the white population? Right. Yeah, and I actually kind of think you know this is one of the strengths of the book is that May is trying to. Sorry, I call her May. I don't. I I, I know her kind of somewhat well. Um, I I think she's trying to really fight against a sort of simplistic. I think kind of almost metaphysical or ahistorical approach to racism, which is to say, you know, there's something like built into the DNA of this country or that country or this or that group to constantly be, you know, racist against these groups. She makes an effort to show that at the very outset in California, in Australia, white workers and Chinese workers were on relatively equal footing. Chinese workers are probably second-class citizens, but they were free second-class citizens. They had their own communities. They were largely left alone. They could work for white employers and vice versa. Some white workers or, you know, like journalists would say flattering things. Some would say negative things, right? And then there's a specific moment starting in the 70s and certainly the 1880s, first California, then Australia, then, you know, later South Africa, where this coolie myth really settles in. And white populations, white voters, um, it's, it's you know, the, the, the people are mobilizing the sentiment or typically politicians or even like craft skilled workers who don't feel directly threatened. But they use this kind of dem- dem- demagogic uh, threat to mobilize, you know, people to vote for them. And like, as I said before, you know, one major piece of the puzzle is that the California economy kind of hits a snag by the 1870s. 
Uh, gold is kind of gone. The railroads have actually made the economy worse in the short term. And under these conditions, and you know, this is a pretty familiar story around the world, right? Uh, people are more prone to want to sort of scapegoat or or find it more plausible to find a particular outside group to blame. Um, and, and so the, the stereotype is not just that they're unfree. The consequence as a result of being unfree is they're willing to work for, you know, one half the wages, one tenth the wages. It's, and there's a sort of racial um, typologization that takes place where, you know, if you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the legislative debates talk about these workers with their yellow skin have different bodies than us. They can perform, you know, they can work longer and harder than we can. We can't, it'd be unfair for us to compete against them uh, and so on. So, you know, predictable stuff, but this was, you know, kind of the justification for a lot of um, these policies. And so it's very much a kind of historically specific dynamic that, you know, wasn't preordained. It takes place in the 70s and 80s. And then for May, she would say with the South Africa experiment, which is kind of its own story and by the 1900s, 1910s, that is the consolidation of a coolie myth, this idea that Chinese people are, not just, you know, contingently, but actually are racially unfree, that they are necessarily this way. And that's unchanging. And I think, you know, she's kind of making a case by the end of the book that this is probably the basis for a lot of stereotype, racial stereotype, for much of the kind of following decades of the 20th century, where earlier China had kind of been seen in relatively positive terms by the rest of the world. By the turn of the 20th century, this stereotype kind of takes over many people's impressions of China, Chinese immigrants, Chinese people. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And in terms of the movements, I mean, how much movement was there? I mean, you talked about people who set up as traders and Hong Kong being this trading hub. And sort of imagine it, that very simple idea, you have people who leave China to go to work in California, and that's it. But was there a lot of movement of people across the Pacific in both directions and to Australia as well? I mean, were there people who would have traveled between Hong Kong and San Francisco and Melbourne? As far as the triangulation, I'm not quite sure. Probably, that's probably just a fraction. It's probably mostly bi-directional, except for probably the elite who travel around a lot. More broadly, though, I think what your question is getting at is, I think, a really important um, intervention by May, which is to say that big picture, she kind of begins the book and ends the book by saying this is not just a story about a particular group and their sort of racial uh, backlash against them. The context is the sort of the creation of this thing that we would today call the Asia Pacific, which, you know, the Pacific Ocean has always been there physically, right? But the, to turn it into a theater of trade, of kind of closer geopolitical and especially economic interaction between the United States, East Asia, and then, you know, British settler colonies like Australia and South Africa, that was kind of up for debate in the 19th century. Like, what is this place, the Pacific, going to look like? For a long time, if you look at kind of like Western European sources, there was always this yearning that i mean very famously right like western european you know explorers are looking to for access to china for spices and goods and silk and tea and so on right i think that's still there in the 19th century there's this this moment with the opium war 1840 uh the sort of 
quote unquote opening up of Japan in formerly 1850s, 1860s, kind of Korea afterwards. There's this real excitement for the business classes of the United States, of Western Europeans, British people, and especially, and also Chinese merchants themselves, that uh, finally, right, the Pacific has been connected and there's, there's all this economic opportunity that, that is out there. And it's within that context of this real excitement by the capitalists and the business classes that you have this kind of contradiction where with trade comes migration, right? If you open up free trade, you also have free migration. And you have, I think, what she calls this book, The Chinese Question. One thing she's getting at, you know, this idea of a Chinese question, a woman's question, a Jewish question in the 19th century, right? It was always about a kind of a contradiction, not just a yes or no answer question, but like a contradiction. And the contradiction was... If you're the United States or Australia, you want access to China. You want access to buy stuff from China and sell stuff to China. And you want to do business with Chinese business people. And in a lot of ways, she's saying Chinese and European and United States business people were kind of of the same mind. They were actually closer to each other than they were to the working classes. It's at the, it's at the level of uh, the working classes where you begin to see this friction emerge, right? So you have trade versus migration. Um, the phrase May uses at the beginning of the book is race versus money, or the sort of conjoined or kind of antagonistic relationship between the two. And if you just kind of think, break it down in a national context, you know, the American capital versus American workers have a very different view of trade with Asia. It's similar to today, right? In the last few decades, we see if you're in America, if you're in Western Europe, if you're in you know, any of these parts of the world, your attitude towards quote-unquote globalization kind of depended on your class position. If you were at the top, you would embrace globalization right eventually if those at the bottom begin not to feel so great about it and we i mean in the uk that i mean in a sense that's one of the questions of brexit the idea that in the eu you have free movement implies free movement of goods services and people or labor anyway and and that was those are the sticking points of brexit although i mean it, it the question of who is on which side is sort of gets more complicated but you could you can present it as a there's this dichotomy between people who feel threatened by the free movement of labor and the people who want to profit from the free movement of capital. But then you also see cynical elite politicians exploiting that anxiety to their own ends, which presumably is what happened in, in California in the 1870s. Right. So the political classes are certainly not unified on this question in the context of the U.S., it's the sort of Democratic Party at the time in the U.S. that kind of mobilizes anti-Chinese sentiment. That this uh, it's also kind of the pro-slavery party. In the context of South Africa and the U.K., um, she makes a claim, which I don't know if it's I, I'm not that familiar with this history. I don't know if it's kind of controversial or maybe well accepted that the Labour Party in the 1900s kind of establishes itself as a distinct kind of party from the Liberal Party with anti-Chinese politics a major factor in that consolidation of the Labour Party um, against the Conservatives. Um, and in this context of South Africa, the I think it's pronounced Het, Het Volk Party, the sort of populist party of South Africa, um, uses anti-Chinese politics as a really big uh, kind of cornerstone of their politics. So the political classes certainly could are responsible for a lot of the demonization, but they're the political classes that claim to be speaking for workers um, or for the, for the masses. And so there's an interesting... I think what I think was interesting as I was reading this book, it, it really kind of messes or con, con, kind of messes around with the with the coordinates of how we think about politics today in the sense that, um, and this is kind of my interpretation, you know, if you're in like academia or journalism or these kind of activist spaces for the last few decades, you kind of hear people rattle off the sort of, 
you know, anti-capitalism, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia. Like these are all kind of like naturally connected, progressive, liberal views, right? And you just kind of assume there's a natural connection between them. But I think what this book shows historically is you have these positions that are anti-capitalist racism, right? In the sense of these workers are protesting capital, but it's expressed through racial racist sentiments. And then you have sort of anti-racist business classes, anti-racist capital, which is to say it's the business classes, Chinese and white business classes that love the idea of free trade, global trade. Um, she quotes, she makes a point, which I think is an interesting point that you know, on this Chinese question, none other than John Stuart Mill was kind of saying, yeah, Chinese people are different, but ultimately everyone's the same. They act in self-interest. They want to accumulate and through education and democracy, they will assimilate to civilized society. And that's kind of what the Chinese liberals, the kind of well-to-do business classes were saying when they would protest these laws, right? And so it's the kind of the elite who support assimilation and integration. And it's the the working classes who are really using their sort of resentment against capital or that the resentment against capital is being mobilized to justify these exclusion laws. Um, May has a phrase, I forget the exact wording, but something like, they were opposed to the slavish, the slavishness of these Chinese coolies, quote unquote, but they did not support their freedom. Right? They they said, you know, they're in this they, out of a free labor position. They opposed the sort of slavish conditions under which Chinese people worked, but rather than liberate the Chinese people and bring them into their society, they just wanted to exclude them and send them back, quote unquote, to where they came from. Um, in a way, it's uh, it's recognizable in a lot of contemporary politics, but it kind of scrambles. The typical way we think about this stuff in terms of like progressive versus conservative and liberal and, and versus right and all that. Yeah, I was trying to remember and I've just just looked it up and seeing that Perry Anderson wrote in 2002 that that James Meek quoted it in the LRB not long ago. And we've talked about it on this podcast before. I mean, he put it sort of later than this, but saying after the Second World War, the historical links between capital and the national on the one hand and labor and the international were broken that nationalism becomes predominantly a popular cause of exploited and destitute masses in an intercontinental revolt against Western colonialism and imperialism. And internationalism, at the same stroke, starts to change camps, assuming new forms in the ranks of capital. This was to be a fateful mutation. As well, the socialism, as Marx conceived it, right, was that it had to be international. Right. And actually, internationalism suits capital because you could always get... It, it, you've, you then have this functionally infinite supply of cheap labor. But actually the only way that workers can defend themselves against that is, if, is to, is to <laughs> well, unite internationally because, because otherwise there's no, actually if you just, if you send the workers home, then the capital will follow them and, and will, the factories will then be offshored. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, in the manifesto, Marx will say cosmopolitanism is the kind of, I forget what he calls it, kind of like the ideological refraction of, of, of the bourgeoisie, right? Like it's the bourgeoisie who are the first cosmopolitans. And the elusive endpoint would be workers themselves would also kind of, this is like sublation, right? They would themselves also um, become cosmopolitans and kind of create this heretofore, never seen before international labor movement. But historically, we have seen that is not always the case. And I think in our own time, we've also seen it as well, right? That, you know, you can get workers, employees, they, it's not that hard to get them to to tap into a set of class sentiment that they belong to the the working rather than the capital classes. But to that often very easily mobilizes into 
a nationalist, defensive, exclusionary kind of politics in it. That's actually historically been far more normal than the, you know, workers of the world unite kind of sentiment, which, you know, comes and goes, but is mostly kind of has been theoretical more than practical um, historically, unfortunately. So in all three of these places that Nida writes about in her book, the anxiety or, or hostility towards Chinese workers was often disguised as concern for victims of slavery. And are we seeing that again with, with anti-immigration policies that have dressed up as anti-trafficking laws? Yeah, I think there are probably parallels there, but I think people today are far better at dressing it up as sympathy and uh, uh, empathy for the workers. I think back then, at least according to you know the story May tells, um, it's very nakedly an exclusionary politics. It's very much about you know their unfreedom is not a byproduct of bad circumstances or of sort of unfortunate, lamentable circumstances. It's a racial condition, right? And this is. This is something I'm a little, I don't, I'm not an expert in this, right? But, you know, people have said in the 19th century, you had a very strong sense of racial ideology, that there's a sort of biological explanation for differences. And then, you know, nobody uses race science as such anymore, but it gets replaced with ideas like culture. People are culturally different. And that kind of functions the same way as a biological explanation. So I think a lot of what you will see today is kind of a cultural explanation that, you know, Again, it's lamentable that, you know, these, for instance, like poor women from Asia are being trafficked, but this is just, you know, a result of the society they live in. And it's, it's, it's incompatible with our society. We can't do anything about it. But, you know, in, in, our, in the U.S. case, right, like workers from Latin America, it's too bad, you know, that they come from these cultures and societies that are different than us. But if they come here, they work for less and they take our jobs. So we have to make sure they don't come in. Um, so I think the polite racism is probably more polite today than it was in the 19th century. But in a lot of ways, the the the, the sort of abstract dynamics are kind of um, are similar. And thinking about how it's changed in 150 years since then, that you write in the piece that the shift from silver to gold symbolized the transition from a world economy centered on Asia to one centered on the North Atlantic. And it seems that that tr transition is being reversed once again that the center of economic power is now shifting back or, or shifting towards China and India and away from the, the North Atlantic. And it seems that it isn't Chinese workers who are now going to work in mines in Australia and in South Africa that, as far as I'm aware, most of what's mined in Australia, most of the, of the, of the raw materials that are dug out of the ground in Australia are exported to China. And also China is investing massively across, across Africa. I mean, can you see it as a sort of straightforward, the pendulum's swinging the other way? Yeah, I think pendulum is a good metaphor. You know, it's not as simple as, uh, you know, one power gets replaced by another power. I think we probably, we tend to forget, A, just how sort of singularly powerful the British Empire was in the 19th into the 20th century. And then after World War II, the United States as well. There was really kind of a unipolar global economy at that moment. I think what we're seeing now you know, who knows? Like, I'm not smart enough to predict the future, but certainly we're not going to see China as the only power around the world. Um, we're kind of seeing maybe instead of a pendulum, you could also use the metaphor of rebalancing, where I think most people would say, you know, the three major kind of pillars of the global economy are the US, East Asia with China in the middle and, and Western Europe, right? And I don't think China, I don't think anyone will predict China will overtake the other two in sort of overall significance. And you know, you know, per capita wealth and all that anytime soon. And as I just mentioned, 
the currency of choice around the world is still the U.S. dollar overwhelmingly and until that changes, right? I think the Chinese government did try to kind of promote using the, the renminbi, the RMB, as the global currency for a while, but that those efforts have kind of stalled, I guess. Until that changes also, you know, that's another sign that the United States is certainly here to stay and obviously the military aspect of it is going to keep them in power. So I certainly think there's a pendulum swinging or rebalancing, however you want to call it. Um, I don't, you know... If, if you ask me, like, my prediction, I don't think we're going to see, like, a Chinese-led global economy, nor do I think that's what the Chinese government is precisely looking for. I think we're just going to see a sort of, unfortunately, perhaps pretty ugly sorting out of two or three equally powerful um, powers kind of around the world. And in terms of the second question, though, I think that's an interesting observation that the global reputation of China, um, or this way that most people come into contact with China around the world is not necessarily through its middle class or working class migrants. Um, certainly that happens and that's happening. That's been happening a lot, but it's mostly processed through the threat of capital, um, as you say. And South Africa is this kind of spectacular story. Um, C.K. Lee of UCLA wrote a really interesting book about this um, called, I think, something global, Spectre of Global China, I think it's called, kind of breaking down like the the statistics and the analysis on the one hand, it's certainly real that the Chinese state is mining and looking for resources and places resource extraction places like South Africa and Oceania. Uh, it might be a little bit overblown and demonized, and it's not necessarily the same thing as like a purely private, um, purely private uh, a type of accumulation. A lot of it is driven by the state for state purposes. But more broadly, I think what it, what is interesting, and and this is something I kind of gestured at at the end of the piece, scholars of Asian diaspora and Asian America have kind of drawn the connection between Chinese workers in the 19th century and Asian capital in the 21st century. And there's a lot of parallel. At first, it might seem like these are two totally different things, right? Like one is workers, one is capital. But there is consistency across the racial stereotype, which is that these are economic threats. And that uh, the way Colleen Lai of Berkeley puts it, right, that the stere- the content of the stereotype for a lot of Asian migrants was their excessive economic efficiency, right? They're not just part of capitalism. They are the sort of obscene, excessive form of capitalism. Like you're not just a wage worker, you're working at one-tenth the wages of a white worker, you know, and that's unfair and that's going too far. And at first then the Chinese workers were demonized as the tools of white capital, right? They work for Stanford, they work for Vanderbilt, they work for the big white company, uh, white capitalist uh, owners in the, in the US and I'm sure by extension Australia as well. And so today that kind of leads to a smooth transition from the demonization of Chinese workers as the kind of as the coolies, as the as the tools of white capital, to just Chinese capital now as the sort of invading threat that threatens to buy up land and take over companies. Um, the analogy or the the other case to kind of keep in mind is like Japan in the seventies and eighties underwent a lot of the same kind of romanticization then demonization in the eighties that China has undertaken. I think that has experienced the reputation of China has experienced in the last 10, 20 years. You know, there's a story in the New York Times. That just ran like this weekend about how in North Dakota, a local town was super happy to sell some, I think, cornfields to an agri- agribusiness company and everyone was happy. There's, you know, going to create all these jobs. But the agribusiness company is like an extension of a Chinese company. And suddenly that, that led to a backlash. Um, and I think that's just like a small illustration of the sort of fear of Chinese capital such that the, you know, people in the small town in North Dakota might oppose their own self-interest, right? They're bringing jobs and money into the region, but they might say, get out, right? Because this money is not just money, it's Chinese money. And we don't we don't want that in our country. 
and also some of that fear of Chinese capital is is directed against Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans, right? That there has been presumably a real spike as well as a reported spike in in hate crimes against Asian Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's impossible to draw the connection or to get inside the head of every attack that happens. Um, I, you know, I wrote about this in a separate piece for for M plus one, if I could promote that. But I, I do think that just big, like, you know, if you zoom in a little bit, zoom in super micro, you, you can't really tell like what's going on. I think it's hard to tell. If you zoom out, though, there are certain patterns I think are kind of hard to dispute, which is with the rise of, you know, reporting on attacks against Asian immigrants, you also have in survey after survey around the world, people's views towards China have kind of plummeted in the last 10 years or so, especially with COVID, but COVID kind of exacerbated a dynamics that are already there. And that kind of kind of falling reputation of China or East Asia coincides with this perception that this is the new kind of economic powerhouse that might ruin our lives. You know, I know I was reading about, I don't know if you heard about this in the UK, there's a lot of fear of Huawei you know, installing the telecom um, infrastructure in the UK. And there were fears that like this Huawei towers would cause COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the 5G, the 5G towers. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know how to read that other than, you know, obviously, it's kind of crazy, but it has to be symptomatic of this kind of fear of, I think, China, I think, I think the stereotype in that case, again, is not a stereotype of these people are somehow subhuman or stupider than us. It's really a stereotype of like they're conniving. There is a conspiracy to take us over. And so, you know, I, th- I would situate, my per- I personally would situate May's book, um, as I was saying earlier, within a broader constellation of good history books that are trying to historicize race, trying to specify race, not kind of fall back on what I think are maybe polemically useful, but analytically simplistic stories of just kind of you know, one group always hates another group. Um, it's the same in the case of Asian immigrants. It's the same Orientalist stereotypes over and over. In fact, no, we have a specific moment, specific place where this Cooley myth took over and it really tapped into or was an index of um, specific anxieties that were felt, class anxieties, geographic anxieties, geopolitical ones. Um, and it can't therefore be collapsed into just, you know, xenophobia or, or just like ethnic, ethnic differences, which, you know, people tend to, I think because people don't like to talk about racism, they like to moralize it and just say like, it's, it's bad, we shouldn't be racist, right? But if you actually analyze it, there's a, there's a, there's a real interesting history to be told about all these different streams. And I, ultimately, I kind of came away from May's book thinking what she is providing is a very materially grounded intellectual history of a racial stereotype, the specifically the racial stereotype of what she calls the Cooley myth, that Chinese workers were racially unfree, not economically and politically, but they were racially um, an unfree people. Um, and I think that's kind of like the, the, the major theme that, that pulls together all the really rich, complex threads that, she, that she's able to kind of um, bring into one book here. Andy Liu, thank you very much. You can read Andrew Liu's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Barbara Newman on Medieval Sanctuary, 30 contributors on the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Mimi Zhang reporting from post-lockdown Shanghai, and a piece by me on Shelley's Last Poems. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.